Yo, what up? This is uh, the Art Pays Me podcast. Welcome back for my return listeners. Welcome to my new listeners. This week we have Guy Lee Johnson on. She's an author and spoken word artist. Before we get into that though, I got uh, some housekeeping things to deal with. So I want to do my shout outs. So shout outs to Andrew Burke. Uh, he really appreciated the Don't Reach episode and uh, said he doesn't really uh, you know, do the basketball thing, but he thought that I did a good job of explaining how it paralleled with you know other aspects of life and business and creativity and all of that so thank you for that Andrew I, I really appreciate it and shout out to Art of Make Noise an artist in Montreal that I uh, kind of connected with I, I left uh, an art page sticker in Montreal there and this person found it connected with me and funny enough they're like an anonymous artist so like they don't really reveal who their ident- what their identity is uh, but, you know, we connected, have a lot of similarities and things in common. So, you know, shout out to Art of Make Noise for showing some love to the podcast. And the other thing is, don't forget, APM Live, Art Pays Me Live, presented by East Coast Creative Collective at the Foggy Goggle in Halifax on Goddard Street, 6 p.m., at the Foggy Goggle. Don't forget, the Foggy Goggle. So doors open at 6. We got incredible guests, Jordan Moore and uh, Elena Camille. They are some fabulous illustrators and product creators and just great people and knowledgeable people to talk to. We got a great community of creatives who have already gotten their tickets and will be there. So we just need the rest of you to help get this thing sold out. And um, we can have a big uh, creative nerd fest social thing going. It's going to be dope. I'm excited. And um, also, don't forget to vote for your boy for best fashion designer in the Coast Best Of. So hit up the best, the Coast Best of, um, dot com, I believe, and uh, look for a fashion designer. And my name, Dwayne Jones, is there. Click that and be done. Oh, but you know what I forgot to say about those tickets for APM Live? They are on Etsy. I'm Etsy, wow, what am I doing? They are on Eventbrite, the other e-web selling platform. Eventbrite. That's the only place you can get them. They are $10. You can only get them in advance. We're not selling them at the door. We're not doing paper. So you have to order them online. Get them things and let's get this rolling. Another thing, this is Saturday morning that I'm recording this on, the day of the uh, storm apocalypse they call Dorian. So I hope the rest of you, if you're listening to this fresh, you're staying safe on uh, on this day. I just finished doing all my storm prep last night. Took my dog for a walk early this morning and we're, we're ready and, and buckled down. So... All of y'all stay safe. Much love. Let's get into the episode. What up, artists? My name is Dwayne Jones. I'm the creative director and founder of a lifestyle brand called Art Pays Me. This is the Art Pays Me podcast, and I'm passionate about finding ways that people like you and me can make a living for ourselves off of our creativity. And, you know, maybe we can make the world a better place at the same time. Let's get into it. This week, I have 
Gailia. Gailia. Sorry, I'm, why am I doing this? <laughs> <laughs> she just told me how to pronounce her name, right? Gailia. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, what is it exactly that you do? I am a writer, a creative writer. <clears throat> I've published two books. My first one was Expect the Unexpected, which is about inner city youth and the challenges they not only face but overcome. It's a book of spoken word. Um, and then my second book is called Afraid of the Dark. And it's about a young black girl um, who's struggling with identity issues. Um, and she's kind of just trying to find her place in society. And that one's a mix of uh, spoken spoken word in there. Okay. Actually, congrats on being nominated for the Coast Best Of. Thank uh, you. Yeah. So are these kind of autobiographical? Um, so in my first book, uh, um, like I, so there's like chapters in between that kind of tell little stories and then there's spoken word poems. Mm -hmm. So in some parts I am telling things about like my personal life or like things that I've experienced are kind of what even drew me into writing. Um, what kind of brought me to writing. Uh, and then in my second one, I'll say there's things that I could probably identify with my character, but it's not so much about like my personally, like there's a mix of things that I feel like a lot of people could take from it. Um, but it's not, it's, I didn't just write about my life. All right. So this one, you, if I'm mistaken, you're like pushing yourself a little more to see what you could do with a character. Yep. Um, I've always wanted to do like um, a short story. Like they were things that, I loved doing when I was in school. Mm. Um, and then like after I did the first book with poetry, I was like, for my when I'm going to push myself to do story and mix it with poetry because I would love to see them both mix. So I really pushed myself to, to find a character and then to try and build that character. Gotcha. Were you always like creative like this? Did you just grow up writing and doing stories and stuff? Uh, yeah, I feel like I was always creative. Like, um, I always like English was always my favorite subject. I always loved writing. Um, it was a really good pastime for me. I don't think that like being as young as I was and creative as I was, obviously because of the world we grow up in, like nobody really tells you to pursue like art things. Like nobody tells you that like those are like the good jobs. So I never took it as serious until probably around like after high school. Like I don't think until I, I didn't take it really serious until I probably would have written my first book that I realized, okay, like you could actually be a writer and do this as a job. Right, right. Where did you actually grow up? I grew up in North End Dartmouth. Okay, okay. And where are you currently living? I'm currently living in Ottawa. All right. How do you find Ottawa as in terms of like creativity? Um, I haven't really got to like Ottawa's creative scene yet. Okay. Um, but I have met like a lot of like artsy people and I know that they do do a lot of spoken word stuff here. Um, 
but yeah, I haven't really, I haven't really seen Ottawa's art scene yet. Okay. So you would consider yourself a spoken word artist first before say like a writer? Yes. Cause I love writing poetry and I like performing it. Ah, okay. Okay. Have you found that um, the more vulnerable you are, the better response you get from these kind of things? Or have you just always been vulnerable with your work? I think that I'm always vulnerable. I think um, I'm just an emotional person. (laughs) I don't know if it comes from being a woman or if it comes from being a Pisces, but I just think that I'm naturally emotional. So every single time I write, it's going to be vulnerable. Like there's going to be some sort of connection because they're just always really personal pieces. So Yeah, well, like I was reading through some of your stuff. I'm like, you, you struggle with a lot of the things that I've struggled with and some other black creatives I know have struggled with and maybe just creatives in general, I guess. Uh, and I could see certain stuff. I'm like, oh, she's going to upset some people with this. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I really I really like that. Actually, I like that you're challenging this idea um, of, well, in just like ideas in general, like you're pushing, you're pushing us as a community to do better. Um, So like, let's talk about mental health. Okay. Yeah. So like one thing I noticed, you talked about like mental health specifically in the black community and, and how that's perceived and, and how like you're, you know, you just push through it. You tough it out. Like it ain't a big deal. Like until it is a big deal, but people don't necessarily even acknowledge it as mental health per se. They might think of it as just something else. Uh, so what's your, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I just think that I mean, it's like what you just said, like when it comes to mental health, especially in the black community, we normalize a lot of the things that we experience. Like, so in normalizing it, it's almost like we're dehumanizing ourselves and our experiences, um, which makes us think when, when you do all of that, especially when you think that it's normal, like it becomes a daily thing for you. Um, then you don't think that you're ever going to need help. Like we, there's a saying that I have in a afraid of the dark where it's like, if you, keep something under the rug for so long, you're just going to keep tripping over it. It's not until you actually remove the object that you're able to like move by swiftly. And I feel like that's what happens is like we suppress so much of our feelings. We keep everything in and we just think that it's normal. Like I feel like it, it really starts as like in your childhood, our, our idea of strength is suppression. And I think that it ultimately leads to depression, but because we don't, discuss don't know exactly what depression looks like we don't realize that that's exactly what we're going through so yeah that's that's kind of what I think about mental health in the black community yeah I I went through sort of a similar experience I was in the last maybe three years I think now I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety but like at the time I was starting my clothing brand I was probably at my worst (laughs) state because i was just wasn't sleeping i was like i was just running on fumes 24 7 
and I was always pissed off. I was always stressed out and trying to do a lot. My kids were really small and um, I didn't really, I didn't really understand what was going on with me. And then when I kind of talked to people, they were just like, you just need to relax. You just need to stop. You know, like it ain't, it's not really, I, and I, I couldn't put it to words. Like I just, it just wasn't possible for me to just feel happy. It just wasn't possible for me to just relax. I just couldn't do it. It wasn't until um, my wife was kind of like, you just really need to like talk to a therapist and see, you know, what's going on. And then if I found out I had this going on, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. And, And it wasn't until I got to actually address it that I've, started to find like skills and like ways to cope with it instead of just like feeling like I was broken because I couldn't just shake it off like other people could. So, um, yeah, I find that interesting. So like, did you have any, uh, creative influences growing up? Um, I did have creative influences, um, I loved Maya Angelou. Okay. Um, yeah, she. I think she was like one of like the main people, especially when it came to poetry. I would always listen to her. Um, and it's kind of what drew me to poetry a lot, especially like being able to say it aloud, so not just writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would say that she was one of my main ones. Uh, okay. And uh, as far as like the publishing process goes for writing a book, how did that actually work out for you? Did, were you approached by a publisher? Did you self-publish or like, how does that work? So when first, um, like when I first even thought about writing a book, I worked at the Boys and Girls Club. Um, and one day they had, we did this workshop and they had, um, this guy come in and he was, he just started his publishing company and he wanted young writers. So his, his whole thing was there was he was trying to, to it's interested in writing so that um, they would ultimately like reading. So that way, cause it would be their own material. And it was just a really inspiring presentation. Um, the whole time I just kept thinking like, I want to do that. And I was afraid to like go up and ask him, but I kind of, knew in my head like a once in a lifetime chance if you don't don't ask now you never know when you're going to see this guy again so at the end of his presentation I walked over and I was like would you be interested in doing um a book from somebody much older and then he was like well what do you do and I was like I write uh poetry and he was like okay and he gave me his card and he was like I want you to send me an email with some of your stuff so I was like okay I went home and because I suffer from anxiety too, I was really like, even though I really wanted this, I was still really afraid to put myself out there, um, let alone to share my work with people because I was afraid that like somebody could steal my work and they could profit off it or they could give it to somebody else and make it seem like it's that person. Like I really didn't know the business at all like that. Yeah. So I'm really afraid. Um, so I only sent him three poems. Um, and then he wrote me back and he was like, I would like to meet with you in person. Um, and then we could kind of discuss this idea more. So I 
told my mom because my mom is a really strong advocate of mine. Um, and it's always good to have somebody with you, especially if you're meeting a stranger. So mom came with me. We met him at a Starbucks. I brought like my whole portfolio of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, we went through it. We discussed pieces. Um, he asked me about like my childhood. He asked me about my writing journey, like things like that. Um, and then at the end, he was just like, I want to do like a publishing deal. He's like, I want to be able to produce your first poetry book. So we talked, then we started to discuss like um, a proper manuscript. So like what that should look like, because all of these were things that I didn't know. Like, I think as a kid, you just think like you put writing on the paper, um, you pass it off to somebody and then it becomes a book. Like you don't realize that there's steps to it or that there's a process. So he kind of helped me with all of that. Um, Then uh, he gave me a contract. I got a lawyer to look over that contract. The lawyer told me that it was um, a really good contract and that it was in my best interest. Uh, so I signed the contract. We went on with the deal. And probably a month before my book was set to go to the printer, his company went bankrupt. Oh. Um, so we got it like it was like a massive email to like all of his clients um, that basically any of the future projects that he was going to do, he wouldn't be able to continue. And then really the only people he could help were the people that he just printed. So basically he was stuck with no choice but to help those people. But anybody else that was getting ready to do the process, they wouldn't be able to. So um, after that, I was kind of really discouraged. Like I just thought it wasn't meant to be. Like I'm never going to write this book. Like I was just like it is what it is. Um, My mom was interested in self-publishing. Um, but again, not knowing the resources, not knowing really where to go if you were to self-publish. So we kind of kept that on the back burner for a bit. Then I ended up going to Dalhousie for, um, the transition year program for blacks and natives. Yes. And my English prof was a publisher. Um, so my mom, me and my mom actually attended TYP at the same time. We were the first mother daughter duo to complete it. And um, (laughs) my mom, like, obviously, because you'll know it if you meet her, but she's crazy. But she um, went up to the prof and she's just like talking to him about like books and things like that because she was like, oh, well, maybe he could do it. I think at first, because like this was in September, so this when we're starting school. I think at first he was nervous because it's like it's a student teacher relationship. You can't let business or money get in between that because it could ruin the rest of the year. Uh, Second, because he hasn't even seen my work yet. So it's like he doesn't even know if I'm really capable of doing what I say I can do. So it's kind of like, oh, I just want you to do a book. And he's like, uh. So I think at first he was hesitant for those reasons. Um, Then for the whole year, um, we just talked about it was all about like school stuff. Like I was obviously like writing papers for him. Um, And then at my graduation, I did like a spoken word piece. And at the end of it, he approached me and he was just like, were you still interested in doing that book? And I was like, yep. And then he was like, okay, I want you to send me stuff. So it was nerve wracking because it was going through that same process again as the first one. And even though he was my teacher, I didn't feel any different. I was still scared because you don't know what people can do these days, especially when it comes to your work. So I did the same thing of only sending him three poems. Each time, he would just keep asking me to send him more. So literally, it kept going for months and months and months until he finally um, was able to have my whole book. 
Um, and then he made a decision and he decided to publish it. So that's wow. how I ended up getting my book deal. And then kind of through that, um, just every single time I think of a story or I think of new things, same thing. I just end up sending off another manuscript and he either says yes or no. See, like I, I like, I like hearing stuff like that because I talk to a lot of people and I've dealt with the same struggle as well of you're always afraid to put something out because someone's going to steal it. But yep. it's not really doing you any good if it just stays in your mind either. Like stuff you're putting out is, is improves helping society. Uh, at the end there, it's sad and it sucks because stealing is real and it does happen. But it's like, you almost have to get to a point where you have to trust somebody or some kind of process yeah uh, otherwise you'll just be stuck exactly you've got to keep moving forward and i like that you were bold enough to like just put yourself out there in front of that and and you're following like different opportunities and figure out ways to leverage that opportunity into something new or you know right back to your old idea you know yeah because uh, because that's another thing people got to also realize, like we all have these different opportunities that get put in front of our face and uh, you got to be smart to figure out, OK, so how can I flip this one opportunity into another opportunity and then that opportunity to another opportunity? Mm -hmm. And you're doing that. So congrats. Uh, Thank you. So is that what happened with the second book? Is that through the same publisher? Yep. So um, my second book was with the same publisher. Um, and I think that uh, now we just have a good relationship. So for my second book, um, I didn't even think that I was going to do a second book. Like everybody kept asking me, oh, is there going to be an expect the unexpected number two? Uh, but I didn't really know because, because expect the unexpected was like, I was in my teenage years. So I was dealing with um, a family member who passed away in a crash um, and writing was my way of like grieving so I'm not even thinking of writing a book I'm just like writing poems that relate to my life um, I started to become more aware of my surroundings and things that were going on in my community so I just wrote things about people in my community or like about events or things that were happening so I wasn't really thinking of that then for my second book um, I feel like I found myself in almost that same predicament of like just going through like a hard time and my way of getting through that hard time was writing so literally I started off writing um, poems and then I was like where are these poems going like ultimately what is the deal I knew that they didn't fit into and expect the unexpected too mm -hmm. and then that's when I started to build um, Kahlua mm -hmm. and so when you say like did Kahlua relate to my life in ways she did because I feel like being a black woman, there are so many times when you struggle with your identity, especially trying to fit into a society that doesn't always accept you. I found myself like constantly being the only person in the room, constantly being in uncomfortable situations. And then I even, cause I worked at the school board too. And even working at the school board and talking to other young black girls, I could see that as young as they were and as old as I was, there were so many things that we could relate to in terms of all of that. So then that's when I started building that character. 
And then that's when I started to transform that story. Um, and I just literally sent him um, an email with like a paragraph about that idea, like kind of where I was going and what I wanted to do. And then he was just like, he, he liked it. He was like, wait until you get the whole thing. He was like, send me the whole thing and we'll see what we can do. So I literally, I worked on that book. Um, another fun thing about Afraid of the Dark is it was literally written in like two and a half months. And then, and then I sent it to him. Um, and then he said yes. And then we went through another, like the publishing process takes such a long time because it, it probably took about another year before it actually went out to stores. But it was, it was like a two and a half month process because I was literally writing as I was going through something, so. Mm. Mm. It's, uh, I, I kind of, I love it, but I hate it at the same time because I feel <laughs> often that I, like, I pump out work when I'm most messed up. <laughs> yeah, it's the way it works, especially as a creative. Yeah, I, but one thing, though, that I've been working on fighting is I started to think that I could only work when I was dealing with pain. So I felt like at times I might even be self-sabotaging to make, so I could make work. Mm. I started, it wasn't until I started to actually get happy and I started to find ways to still make work that I was like, Hey, I can actually, I can actually make work when I'm happy too. I just got to find a, <laughs> a problem to solve. And if, as long as I got a problem to solve, then it, it's good. Uh, um, but yeah, like that's, that's great. I'm actually trying to encourage my, my daughter to write a book. <laughs> so I seen, I seen your post this morning and I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do you want to know? No, I was just going to ask you like, um, what jump started that idea? Like, what does she like writing too? Um, and then kind of what writing does for her. Like, I would like to know at a young age, because I wish that even in my younger years that I was able to pay attention to kind of realize what writing was to me at those times. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, with her, like she writes, well, it started out, she just likes to read in general, but she draws dogs all the time like she, she draws them and then she started like adding these little like bub thought bubbles into the drawings and then it'll be like a little bit more descriptions of what's happening in the drawings and then in school they would like encourage her when they would do their creative writing or whatever um they always have drawings incorporated but they would try to push her to write more and then focus on the drawing so much. So she got used to the idea of writing um, longer bits of content that go with her illustrations. And like one day she's just, some of the stuff that she's just been writing, I was like, whoa, this is legit funny. But you wouldn't necessarily know from her personality because she's really withdrawn and um, just quiet in general. And it's like mm -hmm. social challenges. So, but like in her, in her stories, her real personality comes out, the personality that her parents see, that, that her sister sees, it, it comes out. And it's like this sarcastic, comedic stories from the perspective of dogs. And cats are almost always the, the enemy in some capacity. <laughs> so um, I, 
this book seems to be like it's coming together with if I'm, I could be wrong, but it's so far from what she's writing, it seems that it's going to be like a dog and a cat working together, which is new for, for her because <laughs> the cats are just always the enemy. But um, <laughs> yeah, so the, I, and I've been doing some research just separately, like listening to, um, oh, what's his name? Pat Flynn, Pat Flynn, who, he talks a lot about self-publishing and so I've been thinking about self-publishing for her because then I can have more control over her using her actual illustrations in it. I'll do the graphic design and we could go that way. But then I was also thinking, well, would it just be better to just get it published to a publisher? So, you know, until she actually gets the book done <laughs> and I can go, go further with that. But yeah, like the amount of time she spent on it yesterday, she actually has a few pages of just content, not just drawing. So I'm like, hey, okay, she might actually get this one done. So yeah, nice. Yeah. So good to see that. Yeah, I can share it with you. It's it's um it's uh it's fun. It, and it'll be it'll be she would get a kick out of like an actual author <laughs> looking at her stuff. <laughs> um. So what's actually one piece of advice that you would give a, a writer or author, any, any kind of artist in general? Um, I would say my first thing would be to stay authentic, to be yourself. Um, don't let anybody alter your art because ultimately it's you, like you're the storyteller there's a reason why you do art. So I would just stay authentic to yourself because you're going to get in those rooms where people make it feel like you have to change yourself or that you have to change certain parts about your art, but don't. Like, I think that by staying authentic to yourself, you stay unique because obviously there's going to be something different about you that stands out. Even if you get into the room with a publisher, you have you have to be confident enough in your work to know that you're sticking by what it is that you draw, what it is that you write, anything, and that you want it to kind of stay like that. There, there obviously is like, um, um, there obviously is a, what is the constructive criticism. Yeah. And I mean, those are things that you can take into account, but even then you have to like, you have to stay by what it is that, that you truly know from the bottom of your heart. My second thing I'd probably say is to stay consistent. Um, I think like you see, you can even see with my story, it's easy to be discouraged. Like you, you could look at my two books and think that everything just came together so well. And it's not the case. There's so many year, like year gaps in between those books in between those stories and between those times that if I didn't stay consistent, would I have produced a book? No. So I would just say to stay authentic and to stay consistent. Well, that's, that's great. Great advice. Actually, I wanted to dig into that. The first bit though. So did you find that people felt maybe your story was too black or too specific to a certain experience that it wouldn't be mass, it wouldn't get like mass appeal or mass understanding or something? Um, for my first book, uh, I don't think it was so much of that. <clears throat> a lot of it was the language. Um, 
I sometimes I even still talk with a slang or with an accent as people say when I'm away in different places. And so sometimes that translates through my writing. And I think that a lot of the times when when you meet with um, people in companies or anything like that, because they don't come from where you don't where you come from, they may not understand. So then they want to change the language in a sense. And it's like me staying true to myself and the reason why I even write books is because I'm writing for the younger generation. I want them to be able to understand. I'm not writing anybody else. It doesn't mean if there's people out there that don't get it. It's still like, ultimately, it's my story through my words, through my lens. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean, like, in that sense of staying authentic. Um, in the terms of Too Black, uh, for my second book, I actually got that. Mm-hmm. That people, before that book came out, that people would be uh, worried about that, like, um, was I talking too much about the black experience? Um, things like that. But same thing, staying true to myself um, and why I even write in the first place was because w- w- even when I first wrote that book, like I said, I was working at the school board and it was Black History Month and I had kids who were eager to know about themselves. They wanted to read stories about themselves. They wanted to write stories about themselves. They didn't feel that they were given that opportunity within their classrooms. And I was like, this is why I write. I write to give them content. I write so they can read stories that are relatable to themselves. I write so they can know things about their history. Like, I I want all of my work to be a reflection of them. So that was my first thing with my second book. The other thing was, just because it's talking about Black people doesn't mean that it's just for Black people. I think that that's where we play into those roles of racism or stereotypes or stigmas is because we don't allow ourselves to be accessible or we don't allow ourselves to learn about different cultures and things like that. Like, I feel like if you think about the things you think of that result to hate, it's because another person doesn't allow themselves to be open to learning new things, especially about people that are different or unique to them. And I feel like if you pick up these kinds of books, then you'll be able to understand my community more. You'll be able to understand where I come from. So rather than passing by my community and making judgments or, um, being afraid or anything like that, you'll really start to understand and to realize. And then maybe the next time you encounter a black person, your experience will be different just because you took that time to understand. I, I co-sign that a hundred percent. I feel like as a black, as black people uh, in, when it comes to media and entertainment, we've often been forced to connect with stories for people that didn't look like us and didn't necessarily share our direct mm-hmm. experience, but yet still find a way to connect with them. Like for, I'll give you an example. Seinfeld was my favorite show in, when I was in high school. <laughs> Them characters don't look like me. They're from New York. I was from Bermuda. Um, they're, Jerry's Jewish. I'm not Jewish, but I swear every one of my friends was one of the characters in that show, you know? <laughs> and it was like all black kids from Bermuda, but like, I'm like, oh, that guy's Kramer, that guy is George for sure. Like, you know, so it was, these things we've been, it's possible. So I never, I've even actually, I, as a graphic designer, I've even been um, in situations where I used a person of color in, in a piece of work and I was told, well, the audience can't connect to that person. And it's like, you know what? Fuck you. 
Sorry. Yeah. But, you nope. know, nope. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just, it, it is what it is. Like we've been forced to, to do it and it's okay. Like when you realize that, realize it from that perspective, it is possible to connect with people who come from different cultural backgrounds, different as, as, um, racial backgrounds than you. We all have a shared human experience and it's important to see those different experiences expressed. So, yeah, uh, I, again, I congratulate you for your authentic voice and you seem, seem to be unapologetic about having <laughs> um, So what's next for you? Any, any um, future things or you just kind of chilling for a bit? Um, I feel like I was chilling for a bit. Uh, this fall, I'm going to start getting back into everything that I love. Um, I want to do something different this time. So last year, I played with the idea of doing a documentary, especially one about mental health. Um, and this year, I don't want it to be a thought anymore. I actually want to take action. So I really want to put the effort forward in trying to make that documentary again just because I believe that it's so important and I believe by like conversations like this where you're able to be open and authentic and you're able to tell your real experience it's just gonna make other people more comfortable enough to share too and I really want I really want us to move past the things that we normalize especially in our communities because a lot of the times they're just not healthy and I think that we wait until it's too late. Like we go through it for all those many years. We hit like 24, 25. And then you just start realizing like how messed up things that you've experienced or things that you've seen within your childhood really were. So I just want to move that needle, but I want to move it at a younger age. I don't want people to wait until they're that old to start realizing these things or to start seeking help. I want young children to start feeling comfortable with talking about their mental health, um, especially because I don't think that people realize racism plays a big part in mental health. And if you think about that, a, a, a young black child or even a minority child, you're going to experience that literally since the day you were born. So think about that. If they wait until they're an adult after all those many years of experience in those things, it's just built up trauma. So I just really want to talk about those things um, at a really, really, a really young age. Actually, that's a good point. Um, so remember we, like in the last few years, we had like that spat of gun violence in the black communities here. Yeah. My wife and her friends are all like in the school system. And at the time, some of them were at majority black schools who were directly influenced by the, these situations. And um, you see the, the way a from a systemic perspective, uh, mental health is, is addressed in black communities versus non-black communities because uh -huh. it didn't seem to be taken as seriously from, from the top. And also the way mental health presented itself in the black community is different. So, and, and that influenced how it was addressed because, you know, from, say like because these kids had experienced certain levels of trauma throughout their lives when this thing happened even though they were terrified and they were dealing with a lot of stress it didn't present itself in a way that you would expect stress 
trauma to present itself in say a typical white community. So because of that, they didn't get as much support for that as maybe they should have got. And um, it, that, it, I think it plays into what you said too, where we're like encouraged early on that, you know, this is just what we deal with. So suck it up, move on, get over it, get past it. And they're learning from an early age to do that. And it's not, it's not healthy because then it, like, it, it just comes out in different ways. Like somebody, you know, knocks your lunch off the table by accident and you flip out and it's like, that's yeah. it comes out. And then the perception is, well, black people are aggressive and black people are whatever, but you just don't know the full story of what that individual person has had to deal with. So uh, it's, yeah, it's, this is this is just important to address. No, it is. Uh, one of the schools um, that I worked at, I remember a time where the night before there was uh, a shooting, um, and the next day, this is why it's important to have black student support workers too, because I always have people ask me too, why would you need a black student support worker? But this is why, because. Um, I remember going into the class and one of the students had their head on the desk and they were sleeping mm -hmm. and the teacher kept complaining like, you know, I don't understand why they're so tired. You know, they should have got sleep last night. And they were like, can you talk to them? So I was like, okay. I asked the kid to come talk to me. Um, and I was like, what's wrong? The kid explained to me that the shooting was happening outside of their house. Jeez. that they could they they seen the ambulance come they could see people running so it's like what you just said imagine having to stay up all night because you're afraid you don't know if your house is under attack you don't know if the people you love are under attack you don't even know if somebody in your community is hurt or injured and you're staying up all night because you're worried and you're afraid then you come to school the next day because you have to come to school and then you have teachers that can't sympathize with you or that don't understand. They just think you're a lazy kid that's tired, that doesn't want to do the work, that's, like you said, being defiant, being aggressive, or all those other things. I then had to go uh, explain that story to the teacher because it was like, this kid obviously needs rest. This kid needs rest. They need food. They need water. They need a break. But I feel like that's why it's important to have student support workers in the school board because you do, you need people that are able to really connect and relate to these kids. Like the, the story that the child told, that wasn't an unfamiliar story to me. That wasn't something shocking because those are things that I would have grew up witnessing. Those are things that I would have grew up like hearing outside of my window, constantly hearing ambulances run past your house. Mm -hmm. Random nights where you hear, um, where you hear gunshots going off. Like it, that, that's what I'm saying. There's things that we experience there's things that we know of that just aren't normal. That it's like what you said. You wouldn't you wouldn't hear of that within a white community or them having to deal with those kind of things at school. But for us, that was that was our everyday. Yeah, like because we you know you see something like that happens in a white community. Typically, uh, you know the the counselors are sent into school to to help the students deal with PTSD and all this other stuff. That don't happen. <laughs> it, don't nope. in black it doesn't. <laughs> it's you know, it's just you don't realize someone's father was who goes to the school was just killed. Everybody knows this person and loves this person, but you know, 
all the so many kids are affected by that. Uh, yep. But no one is talking about it. No one is saying like, oh, this is probably why the kids are extra, you know, hyper this week. You know, it's it's just um, it's it's sad. It is. So now that we ended on a on a sad note. <laughs> 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 uh, where can people find you online? Do you have any like public places like website or social media that you want people to look you up? Um, on social media, you can follow me at Cream Get Money. On Facebook, you can find me at Guy Lee Johnson. Uh, and I'm working on my website. I actually um, am going to start a blog this fall. And what I was telling you before about <laughs> my advice with being consistent, I'm going to be consistent. I've tried this blog like three times already, but each time, because um, as we know, being a creative, you still need to maintain like a normal job. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be hard sometimes to like, to, it, it can be a struggle sometimes to like do the art and then do the work as well. So I've literally started this blog like three times over. But this year, that's like one of my goals and one of my dedications is to just constantly put out new work. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. That, and, a, and a blog is a great way to do that. People say um, blogging is one of those things that's going out, but I feel like it's making a resurgence. And uh, it's important, actually, for SEO and all that other stuff. And just I've seen people, too, like, come up with books from a collection of of blog posts so yeah uh it's it's a great medium actually um, yeah so anyway guy and you know what i did not say your last name and i introduced you so guy lee johnson <laughs> yeah she's not like madonna or anything like that it's guy <laughs> lee so look her up, please she's dope obviously and it's, you know i I connected with you through that. Uh, we've got this like uh, black creatives connection group that people are st start. We started to mobilize in Halifax, which is is dope. And I, I found out about Kylie through that, and then found out oh she's an author. And I, <laughs> I saw your books in there, and it's like oh geez, okay, okay, gotta have her on our pays me because you know. She's pretty humble, didn't even talk about all of that in the group. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, anyway, it's really great to have you on. And um, I wish you much success in the future. Same to you. All right. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Art Pays Me podcast. Thank you to Lange Beats for the theme music. If you got anything out of this show, Please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. The more you do this, the more reach the podcast gets, and the more artists I can help learn to make a living at what they love. If you want to know more about what I do, hit me up at artpaysme.com or at artpaysme on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest. See y'all next time.